Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast, brought to you by Source from Sound Agriculture. I'm McCain Vogel, Associate Editor of No-Till Farmer. In today's episode, listen to a compilation of audio clips from the three most popular episodes of the podcast released in 2023. Starting us off at number three, we have the story of how a single no-tiller by the name of Percy Schmeiser fought an army of lawyers as agribusiness giant Monsanto accused the farmer of stealing its Roundup-ready canola seed. Here is Percy's son, John, recounting his memories of the legal battle that went all the way to the Supreme Court and the Hollywood movie that was made about it years later. I, I assume they had an army of lawyers on, on the Monsanto yeah. side, right? Yeah, yeah. So at least eight lawyers from Monsanto sitting in the courtroom, like three or four at the main table at every step, lower court, appeals court, Supreme Court, and counsel from St. Louis, counsel, local counsel from Saskatoon, counsel from Toronto. Their main patent lawyer was, was from Toronto. And so, yeah, there's some pretty big legal fees being paid out at, at, at the time. So after the um, appeal court ruled 3-0 in favor of Monsanto, there was a big discussion between dad and, and Terry as to whether or not they should apply to the Supreme Court. So it's not automatic that the Supreme Court is going to hear the case. They have to make an application to it. And I think Terry pegged it as less than a 50% chance that the Supreme Court would hear it. And dad was of the opinion of still back to why he decided to fight them in court in the first place. And so the application was made. And um, the statement that came back from the Supreme Court was that, yes, we are going to hear the case. And here's the time frame of when it's going to be heard. And, and the only other statement they made to Terry was, we find that this is an interesting case. And what does that mean? I don't know, but it's something that stuck with me forever. And then shortly thereafter, the Canadian Supreme Court heard a case on a patent on a Harvard mouse. Apparently, they wanted to patent a gene that was inserted into a mouse. And the Canadian Supreme Court released their decision about two months after on this, saying that a a patent on a living thing uh, wasn't valid. And so we think that was that was tied to the decision to hear dad's case. Yeah. And so then it went to the uh, to the Supreme Court. So at, at the at the end, he's facing a million dollar penalty if this doesn't work, but committed, undaunted, still going to pursue this. Yeah. And so million dollars plus because it was a million dollars after the court of appeal. So it could be even higher after the Supreme Court, if the Supreme Court rules against that. And so for those who don't know, this is what the Supreme Court ruled. They ruled nine to zero in favor of dad that he didn't have to pay the $15 an acre. Okay. And the reason why, the consensus reason why he didn't have to pay Monsanto is when he sold his canola, he didn't get any more for it. If it was Roundup Ready canola or if it was conventional canola, you got the same price for it. So there's just no distinction by any buyer in Canada that they're going to pay a premium or they're going to pay less, depending if it was Roundup Ready or, or Canola. So on that, Dad 190, there was two other uh, avenues for appeal. And the second one was, was there infringement? And the third one was, does Monsanto have a valid patent? So first one on the infringement, they said, Canada's patent law is very very clear, even if you unintentionally have possession of a patent, the patent holder has rights because you've infringed on the patent. Okay. Now the Supreme Court only ruled five four in favor of Monsanto on that one. And then on the third one, does Monsanto have a valid patent? The answer was yes. So they they said that there was a distinction between the Harvard Mouse case because it was something with a heartbeat and a plant okay and so that was the distinction and the supreme court ruled 5-4 that monsanto had a valid patent so when this all shakes out monsanto got what they wanted the money wasn't the issue right monsanto got what they wanted they got a valid patent and they proved that there was infringement so that they could enforce their patent 
But on the most important case to dad, it was he didn't have to pay Monsanto anything. And the other key thing, the other key piece of evidence in this that really weighed things in dad's favor in the Supreme Court was if you have Roundup Ready canola, it doesn't automatically guarantee it's going to bushel more. It's not designed for dry conditions or wet conditions or anything like that. The only application with Roundup Ready canola is that you can spray it with Roundup and the plant won't die. Okay. And the one thing that Monsanto could not get around and went to great lengths to try and prove is that year in question, dad never sprayed his canola with Roundup. Mm-hmm. So the argument at the Supreme Court was not only did he not receive any more or any less when he sold it, he never took advantage of one and only application of the Roundup Ready canola seed, and that is you can spray it and it doesn't die, the plant doesn't die. Right. And he didn't he didn't spray it. So because he didn't spray it, weighed in his favor. And I think a big another part of the big reason why court ruled nine to zero in his favor. Mm-hmm. You were you were with him the day that the judgment, the phone call came yeah. in, correct? Yeah. yeah, I was also in the Supreme Court as well. And that's why. I made it into the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Supreme Court hearing was probably the most surreal experience that I, that I, I had. Um, just being in the Supreme Court for the first time and having a case that involves your family is at another level. And then when I look at all of the stress, the anxiety, the nervousness of um, you know what could happen, um yeah and then after the supreme court hearing was done perhaps the largest media scrum that i have ever seen and and i and i've seen some for for prime ministers i've seen some for presidents but this was crazy there was media from all over the world there and uh once that was done my wife and i went to a restaurant had a meal and looked at each other and said, did what we see today really take place? You know, it, yeah. it, it was just, just a lot, to, a lot to take in. And so then when the judgment was announced, um, I was there as well as mom and dad and myself, and we were sitting in Terry Zakreski's law office in Saskatoon. And, um, um, we were told that the call was going to come at 10 o'clock and, you know, 10 o'clock and 10 seconds, the phone rings and uh, the legal se- uh, secretary says Supreme Court's on the line. And and uh, within a minute, Terry just thrusts his arm in the air like this in, in celebration with this big smile on his face. And immediately we thought, this is good. And then Terry's reaction changed. And... Uh, it was it wasn't as strong as serious, but it was more focused, I guess. And he was listening and listening and listening. And the call went on for about another five minutes. And so you can imagine we're sitting there and Terry's initial reaction is is yes. And then all of a sudden it's what's going on? And so and I and I think on a couple of occasions, while Terry was still on the phone with the clerk at the Supreme Court, my mom was saying, What's going on? And and Terry, you know, kind of let me finish, right? And so once he got off the call, he hung up the phone and, and he said, you're going to like the news. And I'm going to phrase it this way. Percy, you're my client. And it's my duty to act in the best interest of the client and give the best advice to the client. And here we are today where we have the best outcome for you as my client because the Supreme Court's voted nine to zero that you don't have to pay them anything. And that's when we celebrated a little bit. And once we did that, then what were you so concerned about? And and he said they went over the rationale, kind of a an abbreviated rationale of why the majority went nine zero in dad's favor. And then they advised him about the five four and the other two issues and the majority opinion on both of those. And so he he summed it up afterward. He he goes. Whether or not Monsanto has a valid patent or not is really not your fight. 
Okay. And it has no implications on you. You're not a seed grower, you're a farm, farm equipment dealer. So that's Monsanto's business. You know, whether or not there is an infringement, yeah, that's part of it. But really, there's no penalty to you because you infringed on Monsanto's patent because you have this 9 0 decision. So that's why I say Monsanto got what they want out of it, and dad got the most important area of appeal to him. But, you know, immediately uh, we went to a press conference after that. And before we even walked into the, in the room of the press conference, all the media had been spun by Monsanto's communications people that Percy had lost and Monsanto had won. It, it, was, it was amazing. And still, and still to this day, you know, Monsanto's you know, speaking notes are on this, that Percy lost, but Monsanto won. They just refused to acknowledge that it was a split decision. So there's been a, on a couple of occasions where just some media friends, I said, you know what, why don't you go back and look at the Supreme Court, you know, decision. And uh, and that's been cleared up. But, you know, I'm we're all past the time period of explaining if people want to think you lost, who cares? Mm -hmm. You know, you know, at the end of the day, you know, what was most impactful on our family, that that financial penalty was gone. The weight of the world was lifted off my mom's shoulders, you know. Monsanto had put caveats on all of our farmland so we couldn't borrow against them to finance the court trial. So my mom was of the opinion that there would be locks on, on her house before she even got home that day if, if all three went. And and part of the, the decision of, of uh, the 9-0 that went dad's favor, the court also ruled that each party pays their own costs. And so that was that was in the decision as well. So and to Monsanto's credit, before we even left the lawyer's office, they called and, and said that they had removed all of the caveats that they had on dad's land. You know, they had, they had removed that fairly quickly. So we'll, we'll give them that. But, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, to this, to this day, it, it never ceases to amaze me where I'll run into somebody who may have heard about it and, and they'll go, well, he lost. And it's just like, you know, sometimes if you're explaining you're losing, so you just let it slide. Right. right. Well, b before we kind of get into some of the lasting significance and impact of this, um, had, had it ruled against Percy and Louisa, what would have happened? Would the farm have been lost? Would, was the dealership in trouble? What would have happened had it gone the other way? So we never yeah. saw what Monsanto's legal costs were on the Supreme Court. We knew it was a million-dollar bill once it got past the Court of Appeal. So our guess was it could have been twice, maybe three times as much. So it could have been as high as maybe three, four million dollars. Yeah, that would have been all all the land was at risk. All of our real estate was at risk. The dealership certainly was at risk. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask that question because this this required enormous courage to to do what what was done here at, at that time. So yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and and there would be time periods when our, we were together as family where this was a lot, while I was going through the, the, the courts, the various levels of the court, where this is the last thing that we wanted to talk about. But then there was also some times where there were some pretty frank discussions that were, that were had. And ideally, you know, we, we, we wanted it all, it all to go away. We wouldn't wish that it would happen on anybody just because of how consuming it was at times. And so we were all aware that sometimes when you take a principled stand, it can be very costly, right? And uh, uh, fortunately, it worked out for the betterment. But the other thing, too, is my, my parents, uh, even my mom to this day, just so grateful for all the people that provided financial support. Um, it, it, it's crazy. Like uh, um, somebody would see an article in a newspaper in Alabama. And they cut the article out and there'd be a check for $5, in, you know, sent. And it just say something, I can't help, you know, uh, with a lot, but, you know, here's something to help you. And, and, and just amazing about that. And it was not only North America, it was, it was all over the world where people provided support, financial support, which really helped a lot on the legal cost. But if Monsanto was awarded their cost, there's no way dad would have been able to raise that money. We, uh, it would have completely devastated us. Wow. But kind of want to talk about the significance of all of this. And it was a, at a very interesting time for agriculture. 
we got we got you know roundup roundup ready technology available on a number of crops the the, the world is changing very quickly um percy could have settled this thing on the first phone call for 20 grand and signed an nda and never been able to speak about it again um tell us what happens if if this doesn't play out in the public setting that it did and created this awareness not only for the the wheat debate that followed but for the ability for farmers to stand up and and represent their interests fight for themselves tell tell us what life might have looked like had this never happened they certainly would have pursued payment for their patent a lot more aggressively uh, than what they did afterward and i think one result of this too is because dad never sprayed the canola with roundup that was an avenue for mediation if if monsanto approached somebody and said hey we want to pay we want you to pay if the farmer could prove that he never sprayed it because it was being you no know, mentioned by the supreme court right so then you have both of those things that you're gonna get the same price for it but but yeah you didn't spray it so in the in the judgment and this is going back some time since i looked at it but it was it was very clear about the fact that he, because he didn't spray it, he didn't take advantage of the of the patent technology that was part of the rationale for it so um I, I I know on a couple of occasions, Dad had told had been told by by people that he had met that they were they were come to some uh, a resolution out of court where they didn't have to pay because they were able to prove that they did not purchase either the technology or the chemical to spray it. And so I think that's that's one right there. I think they would have been more aggressive. I think the other thing too is is like we mentioned earlier, I think they would have probably got patent approval on wheat and. And even the wheat grower groups in Canada were not comfortable with that at all. Now the mindset's changed a little bit now because we've got a couple of decades under our belt. But at the time, they were concerned about losing markets overseas if Roundup Ready wheat came into market. So I think that was a big impact. And then the other thing is is um, Monsanto's reputation really took a hit on this, and um, that I think probably had some impact in the purchase by Bayer. And uh, there is there is a Bayer Monsanto tie-in to the movie as well too that we can get into a little bit later. But but uh, Monsanto, when you sue your customer, okay, and you're very public about suing your customer, and then you stand on a pedestal with a megaphone and boast everybody about how you won after suing your customer, mm -hmm. not every customer responds positively <laughs> to them. Right. And so, um, and then the other behind the scenes stuff as well, too, from what, you know, the investigators were saying to our customers at the, at the dealership, that didn't go over very well either with, you know, with, with customers about how to divide farmer versus farmer. Now, this is, this is a community where if a farmer got sick during harvest, everybody else came around to help take the crop up. Right. You know, and, and now all of a sudden, You've got this division there that was that was very very evident, and and um, um, it all circled back to Monsanto's tactics. Their public relations approach was maybe different than what customers were expecting to see from a seed company. Do you think that um, there was a lesson learned here? One that farmers can stand up and fight and actually have a shot at winning and. Secondly, maybe the behavior of big agribusiness may have been changed somewhat. I I don't know about the latter. I I I hope and and you know I, I certainly see it from the equipment industry perspective where you know our manufacturers make a good product and they're able to make that good product because customers are successful and dealers are successful. They can reinvest in R and D and everything, so they're really mm -hmm. attuned to the to the customer. So I, I hope every business that, that, you know, works with our farmer customers doesn't take them for granted and, you know, don't take them for granted that, that the business is always going to be there just because of, of the product that they make. So, yeah, I, uh, I think um, there were some lessons learned uh, out of this. And um, if it makes for 
a better company that's dealing you know through our supply chain i think we all win quite frankly let's pivot over to the movie for a minute and um before i i turn it over to you a couple observations one i think everyone who's listening to this needs to go and rent this movie it's available on amazon um anyone in making a living in agriculture agribusiness a student needs to needs to see this movie and i've seen it twice and also seen the documentary it has a Christopher Walken, Academy Award winner, is playing Percy Schmeiser. Second observation, and you, you shared this with me earlier, John, that your wife uh, is pleased with the um, composite character, Peter Schmeiser, which is uh, was played by Luke Kirby, who I understand uh, she got a better looking husband than she did in real life, as, as you said it, I think, right? Correct. Yeah, so that's okay with the <laughs> Yeah. Tell us about what it's like to see your your family on the big screen and, and how all that came together. Well, very it's it's very surreal as well too, just like being in the in the Supreme Court. And the first time that I saw it was, I guess it was um, June fifteenth of uh, twenty twenty, and um, the um, producers had arranged a screening for the media buyers, so Netflix, Amazon. Paramount, Apple TV, Universal Studios, all of them were invited because they were going to sell the rights to it and and who's going to take it from that point on, the distribution. And so uh, they allowed all family members to to watch it. And so we're we're in the middle of COVID at this time. And and so it was it was done online. And um I I, I watched this movie. I've seen it three times. Okay, that premiere, uh, the Canadian premiere, and the U.S. premiere. I haven't seen it any other time, except for thirty seconds flipping through the channels one night, and and there it was on. Oh, it's on, next station. Um, and it, on each time of those three times that I I I've seen it, I'm not watching a movie, and so it's it's I view it completely different than any other movie that I watch just because of the closeness to the story, to the issue that we all had. And, and my siblings feel exactly the same way. Uh, when my mom saw it, uh, she fell asleep during it, which was probably a good thing. Um, <laughs> Cause it was a little late at night. Uh, but that was probably a good thing because she was a little anxious watching it uh, just because of, the memories that it would bring back. And, and that's the same thing for us. And, and then brings back memories of the time period at the time of what was going on at the time, not only with the case, but what was going on in their personal lives. Because as an example, when something happened, went, oh, yeah, my daughter, Rachel was born right about that time. So those things came back and then, and then the nitpicking started and still does start where, because every movie takes some artistic liberties and in this particular case, um, every word of the court transcripts is 100% accurate. Okay. And um, the writers told us that because they were so worried about being sued that they made everything in the court transcripts exactly word for word. But there are a few liberties that were that artistic liberties that didn't hurt the film at all. And so we noticed them when we watched the film, we noticed them and I try my best not to ruin it for somebody um, and, you know, let them watch the movie and the, and in the entirety. And what I typically say, watch the movie and I'll talk to you about it afterward. And then if you want to know what was stretched a little bit or what was added, you know, I'll, I'll tell you then. So, you know, a good example is my dad was a farm equipment dealer and there's no reference to that in the movie at yeah. all. And, 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 um, when I talked to the writers at one of the one of the premieres, they said, you know, it's you have so much content and it's like, how do you how do you put these storylines in there? And and so sometimes you take the simplest path to tell the story in an hour and 40 minutes. Right. So, yeah, but uh, I'll probably watch it again sometime in the future, Mike, probably. Um, but uh, but for the time being, yeah, it. Uh, it's just an unbelievable experience. It's a it's a great storyteller. I won one bet 
In fact, I wasn't paid for the movie. Mom and dad were paid for the rights. So a production company bought the rights in before uh, before the Supreme Court decision was even import, uh, was issued. So that's how long that this thing was was in the works. So that, maybe I'll touch on that just a, just a little bit. So yeah, it was about three months before the decision came out where they bought the rights and they paid mom and dad five thousand dollars a year on a five year contract as they're going to build this, the the script and um after five years they renewed it for another five renewed it for another five and then when they got all the clearance to go to proceed with the movie uh then an entertainment lawyer came in and negotiated a fee for for mom and dad on production of the movie so so there's no back end or anything like that it's just the rights were were bought and and the writers sat down with all of us for hours um i think like three four days with mom on four or five different times mm-hmm. and then with my with leanne my wife and myself sat down with us for for almost a whole day uh putting the script together and uh the writers told me they reached out to monsanto and and wanted to get some perspective for them from them as they were writing the script and monsanto basically told them if you pre- proceed with this thing we're going to get a court injunction and shut it down and so that's why it took so long for this thing to hit the screen and uh when bayer purchased monsanto one of the producers reached back their lawyers reached back to bayer and said hey we have this project and as i understand it what bayer said we don't care what you do but you will not use the word bayer in your movie Mm -hmm. and so they they were fine with monsanto being in it but they did not they would not consent to Bayer being mentioned it. So there's no mention of Bayer uh, mm. in it at all because it's a, it's a Monsanto story. So they started. Bayer bought them in 2018, I think, right? In I think movie. it was, yeah, sometime around that time by the, okay. by, when they finally got approval. So I think it was, if I remember correctly, it would have been maybe March or April of, of 2018 and filming started the last week of August in 2018 and and also in in may so once they got the go ahead um the writers called mom and dad and, and so they shared the news with us and and um in may um yeah in may they said that liam neeson had signed on to the role to play my dad and uh, this is just priceless i wish you could see it but my dad had these old grade one great you know grade school notebooks that he always wrote stuff and kept in it. And so I asked him when they said the movie's going to proceed, I said, who's, who's going to play you? And he, and he goes, oh, I don't know who it is, but I wrote it down. So he pulls out this old little book and, and he goes, have you, he goes, Lion, Lion Neeson. And I said, would it be Liam Neeson? He goes, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. And I, went, and I, I immediately went, holy crap. Like now I finally knew what the scope or the scale of this thing was going to be. Because if they've signed him, I went, this is going to be a Hollywood production. And so, wow, that's quite something. So um, about two months later, I'm visiting with my parents. And, and uh, I, asked, I asked Dad, do you have any idea when they're going to start filming? And he, and he said, uh, yes, it's going to be this fall. It's going to be in, in Winnipeg. But they've got a new actor to play me. And I went, oh. Do, do you know his name and he goes no i don't remember his name so he goes pulls back this book again and he wrote it down and he goes have you ever heard of an actor named chris walking no dad i haven't no i dad and immediately i thought okay so maybe this isn't a hollywood production again and so at the same time dad said that uh, if you want to go watch some of the filming you know, call the writer and, and they'll, they'll make accommodations for you because mom and dad were invited and dad was invited for a cameo and he said, not my deal or not my style and turned it down. So I did call the writer and just get the details to see if I could make it work. And, and after she told me the details, she said, well, you must be pretty excited that Christopher Walken has signed on to play your dad. And I just went, what? Are you kidding me? And so um, she went through the cast of, who was all signed on, Christina Ricci, 
and uh, Michael J. Fox was supposed to play the lawyer. Mm. And um, in the first week of August, so they're starting filming the last week of August, the first week of August, he uh, broke his arm. And so Zach Braff, who played the, the lawyer, um, uh, filled in for him. And then she also told me he was going to play me. And I couldn't picture him uh, immediately after I hung up the phone. I have to admit, I did kind of Google him and see who was. I went, okay, now I'm not with this guy. Yeah. I did kind of do that. So. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, and then production finished up in Winnipeg. Uh, there were six weeks there. And then they went over to India and filmed there for, I think it was three, four weeks. And, um, and that was um, 2019. And then COVID hit. And and so it was delayed. Um, and I think they, one of the writers told me they, they had to cut back some stuff out of the original score that they had, original um, uh, film that they had, just because producers, lawyers were just a little concerned about going over that line. And, and again, they were, they were worried about litigation. They could not get insurance for the film until they got, you know, that, bear to sign off on it and so lawyers are saying you, know, you can't proceed you know until you get insurance for it so they were so you know cognizant of that yeah so, yeah, so so june 2020 when it went into uh media firms the buyers released in canada on october the 9th and then in the u.s on i guess it was april 30th and then a canadian premiere and a u.s premiere that i went to and represented the family. Coming in at number two is an episode featuring longtime Southeastern Wisconsin no-tiller Bob Wildermuth and his wife Anita. Bob and Anita discuss several topics, including their early days of adopting no-till, Bob's advice for cutting input costs, the 20-plus national no-tillage conferences that Bob and Anita have attended, and even Bob's off-season activity of driving trucks all over the country. Oh. We were just kids. Right, Dang, right, right. Yeah. So how many acres are you farming on the home place here or whatever? All together. It's about 245. Uh-huh. Well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because you haven't, you're not a big time user and uh, you've been in no-till. Uh, do you have chances to expand over the years and decide not to do it or what? We, well, and me mostly... I've had chances. There's been uh, land on all the way around us that could have been added if I sure. really wanted to. But I've not wanted to because I figured I'm not doing that growl darn great with what I'm doing. <laughs> so why do I want to make it worse? Right. And right. Uh, that's where that's always been. And <clears throat> We milked cows for a long time, all the time I was growing up. And then we moved over to this farm where I'm at. It isn't that far away from the other one. They could milk about twice as many. And uh, so, of course, things went along and time went on. And I kept, I finally told my father, you know, the milk inspector is really going to get PO'd with that cement we got outside the barn. It's supposed to be in good shape. I said, this about had it. Yeah. And I said, and we got some other difficulties around here, which we need to know work. And uh, I knew at that time, that was a lot of years ago, it would be 50000 bucks at least to straighten things out any kind of way. Sure. And uh, wasn't really interested because I knew what they'd say at the PCA. Well, my goodness, you need to milk more cows to pay for this. Sure. And I had no use for that. Yeah. So before long, we quit milking and just fed steers for and two farms for a while. We usually have about at least 100 going for a while. And uh, then one winter, my father says, you know, you ought to come down here at that time. Well, they had had a house down in Florida for over 20 years, the Funiac Springs. Mm-hmm. And uh said, you ought to come down here over the holidays. Oh, geez. Got to feed the cattle. I got to find somebody. Well, shucks. I thought more about it and ended up called up or uh, just ended up taking the livestock what I had left, which were about 20. And there were a few that I should not have sold right away. I should have sold for uh, weren't quite big enough, but. Otherwise, I'd been feeding the steers shell corn. Mm-hmm. And once the bellies get used to it, 
uh, it turns into be a darn good looking animal. Yeah. And uh, once in a while, a little hay, mostly shelled corn. And uh, so I had some Holsteins that went prime. Wow, that don't happen. <laughs> well, I right. thought when it got back, we'll do it all over again. Got back, the price of livestock went down. <laughs> the, the farmer. And I said, well, <sighs> maybe not. But we never did after that. We've just been corn and beans. And that's probably been 25 years at least. And uh, yeah, about that. And uh, all just corn and beans and and uh, her teaching school. And, and uh, it's not been that great some years like everybody's. But the uh, last two years uh, with the kind of some help of new uh, genetics and everything, um, and then the fact that I kind of like this AgriSolutions blow salt fertilizer, which uh, I put in right when I'm planting, right on sure. the seed. And uh, I used to just do what they said, which was about six gallons to the acre. But it seemed like towards the end of the season, it was dying out. I'm not dying out. But you can't, the, product, uh, uh, the stalks just looked like maybe they needed a little more. Mm-hmm. So I just jumped to it, and heck, I went up to 10 gallons. <laughs> Not supposed to do that, but I did, and it's worked. Good. And uh, that and the uh, help from the local DeLong company people and so on, now I'm up to where I, to last two years, I over 200 bushel of the acre corn. That's, that's, that's something great. I can't believe that. I can't right. believe that yet. Right. But uh sure helps to pay the bills. And these kind of bills are just seems like they get larger both in the last two years also. And, right. Uh, I think, so I'm, uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm kind of like you. I grew up on a dairy farm north of Detroit, about 40 miles, and I think that milking cows and lugging hay bales is what made me an ag journalist. And as my dad once said to me, <laughs> You just decided it was easier to tell others how to farm than to do it yourself. So I think there's probably some truth in that. You're as old as I am. We're both in our 80s. I like to refer to myself as being as old as dirt. But you've you've probably seen it all. You probably ended up started out moldboard plowing, and you went to minimum tillage, and ended up with no-till, right? I kind of went that way. Although I did quite a jump, uh, I just got disgusted with with working in soybean ground. Yeah, it looked pretty. Oh, ain't that nice? All out there, nice and black and level, or at least mostly level usually. Sure. And uh, But I said, this is silly. This ground is soft to begin with. What are we doing this for? Mm-hmm. I didn't have a really great corn planter then, but uh, it kind of worked. And then after that, I have to go into a few things with my father and the University of Wisconsin stuff. Well, they're using an Alice Chalmers planter. And for no-till, son of a gun. So I poked around and ran onto one and uh, went from a four-row to a six-row, in fact. And as that went on, and uh, I, uh, this is is working, especially on the soybean ground. Mm -hmm. This is working good. It's growing all right, but the planter sure seems a little stupid. And I'm hearing about all these picket fence uh, rows and, and planting and so on. This thing sure ain't doing it. (laughs) <laughs> and then I learned out how or why, because it was the way the planter is made inside mm. where the pl- seed drops down. It hits a, it hits the uh, casting inside there. Well, I forgot the seed's not going straight through. So some of them are close together. Some of them are spread out. And uh, so it took a while. And I finally got a John Deere. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one I've got now, uh, yeah, I keep looking at the, at the, uh, tools and the things that I could add at uh, the no-till shows and and thinking about it. And I'm still not sure 100% I want to spend money for any extra things because I'm getting picket fence stands. Uh, maybe there's something I could improve. That's what I keep thinking. That's what yeah. I keep telling myself. There has to be because they're selling this stuff. It must be working. All right. But uh, uh, I haven't done any of that. I've just been using what came with the planter. And it's been working pretty good, so I've been doing that. And uh, as I, as I like to say, with this whole thing, I guess anyway, I say it's an old old adage, but the kiss principle: keep things simple as you can, 
And uh, when you're using quality seed and good fertilizer placed right and good rain, if if it's possible, uh, you can still get over 200 bushels the acre, apparently, because I did it two years now. (laughs) So your John Deere planter, what model is it and how old is it? Oh, uh, gosh, it's got to be a dozen years old at least. It's mm-hmm. the 1780, 1780 is a John Deere six row. Okay, right. And, uh, what, what row is it? I have 30 inch. 30 okay, inch. gotcha. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Use this to plant soybeans too? So I can, you know, watch what's going on. But the only, there's several things you can do. But the main thing I want to know is the population, how much population I'm putting on. And that's, basically what i'm watching mm-hmm. and uh uh it it seems to be pretty good okay different seed you get different seed and it'll go from 31 32 to maybe another seed product it'll get up to 35 that's thousand yeah and right. uh i'll run along with it and then, well i can't say that's hurt me any right. i'm still getting decent yields and the hybrids i think can take it Mm-hmm. I think they're able to take it, so I'm not concerned. It would be nice if the different hybrids would be the same, but they're not. I've changed the adjustments a little bit, but generally they are too much either way, so I kind of hate to mess with them. And uh, I don't mess with, as I said, I <laughs> messed with the fertilizer a whole lot since I got that about 10, 11 gallons per acre area. Mm-hmm. It's uh I keep the nut pretty tight on that adjustment. And, are you uh, are you fertilizing other than with the planter? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. The local fellows here in town in Clinton, they, they in fact they've got the last soil test that I have. I don't think I even have a copy, but uh, they look at it real close. And uh, uh, this will pass fall. Now that's another thing. Two years, I have put the spring lay down or whatever you want. I used to call it plow down. I don't like that idea. Fertilizer on, and uh, but they've done it in the fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not very happy with that idea. I've got really hills, not really bad, but I do have hills, so I always worry about it. Well, this year was great. Any rains we had this fall, uh, there wasn't any toad stranglers with it. Yeah. And uh, last year, apparently, it wasn't too bad either because it worked. Mm-hmm. In fact, I had the water checked with an outfit up at the university uh, in, um, oh gosh, what is it? Anyway, it doesn't really show much of any fertilizer runoff. Good. And uh, so that's good. But they did that. And uh, so that was on first. That did that now two falls. And uh, uh, by golly, that seems to, well, actually, this is the third one coming up. And uh they did it here in uh, December after I finally got everything off. And uh, uh, I had some, had one field with a farm and the farm at the other farm where I grew up is, has some fields that are always bugger. They just try to wash on me and it kicked me off. <laughs> the point I was thinking about, put the whole darn farm into alfalfa if there was enough people around here milking cows or feeding cattle that needed it, but there aren't. Right. But uh, so I haven't done it. And I said to our, the, the uh, uh, farm uh, service agency, what do you think about terraces? And, okay. It wouldn't be a bad idea. So I put one in last, uh, that would be last November, I think it was. And a year ago, last November, I mean, this past November. And then this past spring, they did two more. Now, they're not real big, but they had things to do, and the weather had to work around the weather. And uh, I was planting as they were finishing up, and that took to be uh, the last of April before I finished planting. Sure. And uh, it, uh, but it, or not the last, middle April, yeah, middle April, then I got done. So anyway, that got, that was a little bit higher moisture was where I was going when I combined it. But still it was... Uh, Around, uh, let's see, 21, I think, 2021. So it had come down a lot with that fall we had. We've been lucky that way. What, last three falls, something like that? And it's really dried off. And uh, I try to take advantage of that. 
I am trying to get at it, but I just don't like to. With soybeans, I don't like taking any green beans to town. I think that's stupid, but there's guys that do it every year. Yeah. And uh, uh, I usually wait just a little longer. Okay, then maybe I lose on the other end. They get too dry. This last year they did. Not every year. Last year they did. And uh, you just have to work around all this stuff. Your comment about terraces reminds me of uh, way back in the 70s. There was a Soil Conservation Service agronomist at the time, which is now NRCS, but in north of Indianapolis someplace, and he made the comment that at the rate we're going with sod waterways and terraces, it would take us 100 years to get everything under control, or we could no-till and get it done in two years. So <laughs> that guy's got brain. <laughs> right. Definitely difference to a certain extent. I can sure see that. I've always done it. I mean, I can see it, especially on the other farm there. But now I got the terraces to go with the no-till. Yeah. Right. And uh, it was kind of fun when I was planting, as he was trying to finish up with the leveling off the area and around the terraces. I kept working a little bit here, a little bit there. Time I got done on both of them, I had my short rows in the middle. <laughs> it was great. It was crazy when I came to combine. So you talked about the, you talked about the Alice Chambers no-till planter. When is it, when did you start no-tilling? What year was it? Good question. Probably before I retired, and that was ninety-eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were probably three years, four years. Oh, I'd say yeah, probably about ninety-five, maybe. Mm-hmm. It's been quite a while. So you've been no-till all all the way since then. There was, like everybody, a year or two, and my father, I had to work with him, and he wasn't so sure it was a great idea on sure. the ground that uh, uh, hadn't that wasn't open, you know, that still had a lot of stalks up on top. But uh, And it also helped with the better the planter. The, 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 uh, the, the last Alice had great big old opener discs. I forget the di- diameter now, but they were big, and uh, it just cut through everything and didn't seem to care. Yeah. Which is the same with my John Deere one seems to work. I yeah. talked to a guy that mentioned there are a couple of them in the circle thing there on John Deere. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wondered if anybody had any other ideas. And a couple of guys, I think they came together and said, oh, we don't even have those openers anymore. We don't need them. Yeah. Oh, well, I hadn't tried that yet. <laughs> I still have them out there in front. Yeah. And I think I need, especially this next year, I didn't have the, the, uh, the uh, chopper on the back of the combine, I didn't have the uh, teeth sticking out for quite a while until I remembered it. And uh, that makes quite a bit of time. It ain't exactly a Kelmer carpet time it's done. It does help to make them a lot smaller. Sure. And uh, so we'll see how that all goes, but I think it'll be okay. I can work through it. Let's talk about soybeans. Yeah. I was just going to mention that the one thing I I have always tried to do, except this last year, because <laughs> Soybean Association needed some ground for plots. Mm-hmm. I okay. So the guy came out. He's a farmer north of Clinton. He came out with his uh, eight-row planter, I believe it was, and he planted it all in 30-inch rows. Well, I'd given up on that a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know what? Plant your beans. Well, yeah, okay. What would you think it would be worth? Well, it wasn't a bad price. Go ahead. Well, I'm not sure I'm going to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> I've never used so many, replaced guards so many in my life. Yeah. And I can figure there was just too much old corn stubble and other stuff that was getting in the way in certain places. Because generally, there was quite a bit in the same place. Mm-hmm. And the guards would just break. And uh, I'm not going to do that again. What I do and have been doing, I have a, oh boy, I can't even think of the name of the no-till drill I got. But anyway, uh, I try, wherever I can, to go on a slight diagonal to the cornrows when I plant. Sure. Mm-hmm. Go straight. I go on a diagonal. I like that a lot better. And I also always had a, a fixed drag. You know what I mean? A fixed drag? Yeah. You have yeah. To li- it's mounted on there, and you lift it up and down with a cable when you're going from wherever. And... uh I really need to get new drags. Uh, what, it was, it's made with chain deal. One side, it, <clears throat> it, it hangs pretty uh, pretty level and not too uh, strong. You flip them over the other side, and it, it's made for really rooting. And uh, 
I think either way, it wouldn't be too bad anymore. It's it's really worn out on that one side. Mm-hmm. But it does help a lot when you're going crossways, and the, and the drill does a halfway decent job of loosening up corn roots and stuff. But then they're kind of laying there, so that, but the drag kind of exposes them, really, and uh, they don't bother much when you come to combining. Sure. And uh, your field is, is somewhat more level, too. It does make a difference. Uh, yeah. The drag isn't strong. It's not a big rugged thing, but it it rolls along there, and the and the openers and so on on the drill loosen it up a bit, and, and uh, it makes a big difference. I like that better. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go back to it. This last year, the tractor that I had using it, I took it to a guy with the drill and said, "You know, I'm you're better out of than me. There's a lot of bearings on the, all these damn openers, and there's a few that are shot." So we replaced all of them for me and had the whole month of March he had it. And I took the track to him and he says, hey, you know, your tractor, that clutch isn't so good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I was kind of wondering about that. Free play is pretty thin. So he tried to replace that. Well, the time I got done, I spent, I don't know, 5000 bucks there, I think. And uh, But I got both of them fixed and I didn't get 20 hours on the drill or the tractor, either one. Yeah. This Talk about saving money. <laughs> <laughs> The other way around, <laughs> the last fall, uh, the fall when I was finishing combining, I had the tank pretty full. And spring came along, and I had enough diesel fuel. I didn't have to buy any this last fall, or this last spring. Wow. Because I planted my beans, and when I planted my 100 and, well, about 130 acres of corn, the uh, I got by without buying any diesel fuel. That's great. It's just savings all over the place, you know, if you work yeah. at it. <laughs> we'll be back to reveal the number one most listened to episode of the podcast in a moment. But first, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Source from Sound Agriculture, for supporting today's podcast. If you want to make your fertilizer plan more efficient, source it. Source from Sound Agriculture optimizes the amount of crop nutrition supplied by the microbes in your soil providing 25 pounds of nitrogen and phosphorus per acre. It's a cost-effective alternative to live biologicals that you can throw in the tank and spray in season. If you want to unlock your crop's potential and increase ROI, there's only one answer. Source it. Learn more at sound.ag. And now, it's time to reveal the number one most listened to episode of the No-Till Influencers and Innovators podcast for the year 2023. The most popular episode features Fall Line Capital Director of Agronomy and No-Tiller in Manitoba, Canada, Scott Day, as he talks about no-tilling in the extreme climate of Canada's prairies and why choosing a diverse crop program has been so successful on his no-till farm. Scott, tell me where you are in Manitoba. You're pretty close to the U.S. border, aren't you? Well, we're only about... 25, 30 kilometers from the U.S. border from North Dakota and about 50, 60 kilometers from Saskatchewan. So I'm okay. straight straight north of Minot, North Dakota, about an hour and a half. My family's been in the area for about 120 since since agriculture started here in southwest Manitoba. You uh, went off to school, then came back home? Yeah, I, I went to university and then I actually traveled for a couple of years working on farms in Australia and Ireland. Oh, and then okay. I came home and, uh, you know, that was a great experience. And I came home, not sure what I was going to do. Our farm was really quite small. It was a livestock operation. And uh, and I ended up buying a piece of land beside our farm and getting a job as an extension agent for the government on the same day. Wow. <laughs> so uh, I've had essentially two careers ever since I decided to focus on agriculture. And, and uh, that's why I still farm today, yet I've had uh, other jobs along the way. Yeah. So how many acres are you farming today? Well, it's just my father and I, and my father just turned 80 last week, and we farm 1,650 acres. We used mm-hmm. to farm a bit more than that and had a hog operation as well. But uh, my work keeps me very busy, and I travel a lot, and so we've kind of consolidated the farm to be a little over 1,600 acres, essentially in a, in one block around our farmyard. Sure. Right. So what crops are you growing up there? I think you've got a real diversified rotation, don't you? (laughs) 
Yeah, well, I was an extension agent and I managed a research farm looking at crop diversification. So I was always involved in no-till, but also looking at new farming methods and new crops to grow. And uh, I'd often try and implement that on our own farm. So we've we've grown sunflowers and marrowfat peas and lentils and flax and oats and variety of other things. But now we've kind of settled on growing canola wheat, malt barley, uh, soybeans, and dry beans. I've had to keep my farming side of things relatively simple uh, because of my other work commitments. So I I probably would be growing corn and sunflowers and those crops, but they take so long and take me well into the time of year when I'm usually in the United States working. So I, I don't grow crops uh, specifically for what's best for the farm. I kind of grow crops that fit into my schedule a little bit. There you go. Soybean production in the U.S. is, I mean, North Dakota and South Dakota have really gotten on the soybean bandwagon in the last few years, and apparently you're making soybeans work up where you are too, hmm? Yeah, we've been very fortunate with soybeans. I was involved in kind of helping usher in the crop uh, along with a lot of us with the department and the industry. But, you know, 15 years ago, I think there was less than 10,000 acres of soybeans. And then we hit close to 2 million acres in 2017. So that was a very rapid increase. And that had a variety of things. You had better harvesting equipment. You had better varieties. You had better crop protection products and so on. But ultimately, you know, we're able to access varieties that could mature in our climate. So I, I grow double zero soybeans, and last year I grew a triple zero soybean, mm-hmm. and they yielded quite well. The problem that soybeans are having in Western Canada is that they don't handle uh, lack of moisture in the last half of the season okay. when our crops like, you know, wheat and canola and barley and, and uh, those crops are maturing and getting ready for harvest, that's when soybeans still need some rainfall and we haven't consistently got that. So this year will be interesting with the drought as to how that will affect the soybean yields again. You know, the peak in soybean acres was a few years ago and lately that's kind of tailed off because uh, there's lots of areas where they just don't get enough moisture to grow a good soybean crop late in the season. So we loved having that crop in the rotation. Yeah. Yeah. What's it do for you in the rotation? Well, most of our canola is Liberty Link or or even Clearfield. There is Roundup Ready canola that makes up a significant acreage, but for the most part, we don't have a lot of Roundup Ready crops in our rotation. So um, putting soybean in allows us to use glyphosate in a different way. And uh, we don't have widespread glyphosate resistance yet because we have had a lot of variable options in the system, primarily because we had mostly Liberty Link canola rather than, uh, you know, exclusively glyphosate Mm -hmm. canola. And being able to grow soybeans, you, you know, you plant them a little later, you're using a a Roundup Ready system or an Extend to provide a different way of using herbicides in your rotation, and then you harvest them later as well. So they fit really well into your schedule, adds the right type of diversification to your rotation. So, you know, farmers like growing them. It's just uh, getting the yield and and income compared to, say, growing another crop of canola has been a bit of a problem. You you mentioned weed control and Roundup Ready and Liberty Link. Quackgrass was a big problem for you people before you were no-tilling, right? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, that was kind of uh, one of the things I learned with the no-till group is that my grandfather had always been supportive of soil conservation, as had my father. Um, but, you know, you just didn't have the tools to, to go no-till back then. And so when you kind of went from full tillage to, like, conservation tillage or less tillage, you kind of had the worst of both worlds, mm-hmm. where you had some of the weeds that were left from the tillage era, and they were doing really well in the no-till. And one of those that was really a problem when you kind of half made a half an effort towards no-till was quackgrass and it was you know I remember those first few years of us transitioning to reduce tillage we were almost going to give up because there was so much quackgrass and um, and with you know if you make one or two passes you're just dragging the roots around the field so you're spreading Mm -hmm. it around that way as much as seed with no-till stopping tilling and stop dragging the roots around and then with glyphosate 
uh, being used in the fall and just being used judiciously, I can't point to a quackgrass spot on our farm anymore. And uh, it, it's it's like a lot of things, you know. Yeah, if, if nature will adapt to whatever you're doing, and if you kind of just halfway move from one system to another, you end up probably having the worst of both worlds for a while. So this was my message to other farmers as an extension agent was, if you're going to try this, then, you know, do it. Don't go halfway and then blame one thing or the other because it's not working. It's because you will probably end up having uh, problems from both systems if you just go halfway. And when I mean halfway, like you were still cultivating prior to the drill or you were using aggressive tillage while seeding or that sort of thing. I thought it was interesting where you said you're basically using glyphosate or Roundup on soybeans, but not on your other crops because you're using uh, Liberty Link and Clearfield canola. You know, if you look at the numbers, there's probably the most canola is the Liberty Link. Mm -hmm. And in that region where corn is grown, grain corn is grown, then a lot of that corn is Roundup Ready. But our other crops that we grow, like wheat and barley and peas and lentils, and those crops are not uh, herbicide tolerant. Right. Uh, they're not genetically modified. So we have quite a few crops in our rotation that we have to use conventional weed control on was the canola that was the genetically modified crop that had herbicide tolerance. And Liberty, um, there was a couple of things. First of all, the, the varieties were, were quite good. They yielded very well. And then the Liberty was very effective in our climate. There's, I know the guys in Australia haven't had great success with Liberty and weed control there uh, as much as we've had. But Liberty just worked very well in our climate so that we had that option always in our rotation for most of us anyway. And uh, and so introducing a Roundup Ready crop like soybeans is actually adding variability to most of the farming systems here on the prairies. With the flex draper headers that we're using for peas already or, or lentils, you know, they're just a natural fit sure. for soybeans as well. So you, you're able to include soybeans in your farm without any modifications to any of your equipment, you know, which is certainly a different thing when it comes to corn. And we plant soybeans with our air seeders. The only problem is, is we have to up the seeding rates or seed costs are a little more than if we had a planter. But as far as the crop stand goes, it looks fine. So on these triple zero uh, soybeans, what kind of yield would you like and how, how many days of a growing season do you have up there? The triple zeros got hailed, but they still yielded about 40 bushels the acre, which I thought was great considering sure. uh, it, it had hailed. The first year I grew soybeans with the double zeros, we had really good luck. They yielded about 50, 50 to 60 bushels to the acre. And you plant them about the end of the third week to the end last week of May, mm -hmm. and you harvest them the first of October. Sure. Um, we have a bit of an advantage with day length, but, uh, uh, you know, it's not that much farther north, uh, so it, I, I don't think it's that's the extreme difference. Right. But it's a kind of an interesting experiment in that these fields are, are, you know, truly virgin soybean fields. There's no disease, and there's even thought that the inoculant that you're um, putting with the seed is is more aggressive than what is uh, commonly found in the corn belt. Like in it, it has an ability to produce more nitrogen than the native populations you find in established soybean areas. Mm -hmm. So that we have this benefit of having, you know, really clean fields when it comes to f fresh soybean. And, you know, maybe over time, our yields will start to go down as root diseases and other things prevail. And there is, you know, in the Red River Valley of Manitoba, some of the common disease issues that are plaguing soybean producers further south are starting to show up in a, you know, in the odd field here and there. Are you planting totally spring crops or do you have any winter seeded crops? It's, it's entirely spring crops. We did have uh, maybe 10 years ago, there was a, a, a pretty big increase in winter wheat and uh, it just hasn't been consistent in providing you know, more income per acre than spring wheat. Winter wheat should yield more, but it doesn't always do that. And then it is not 
usually worth as much as spring wheat. We also have the problem of harvesting and seeding at the same time. <laughs> sure. Right. And uh, we have a pretty tight window there, so that's a bit of a issue. Right. Where I am in southwest Manitoba is where a lot of rye is produced, fall rye, that then goes to the U.S. to be used as uh, cover crop seed. And so the fall rye is planted primarily on fields that are difficult to grow spring crops, like really sandy uh, areas and kind of poor quality soils is where uh, fall rye usually is planted now. You bring up an interesting question here because we've got more people wanting to try cover crop seeds and apparently seed production was not that great last or this year and seeds getting expensive to buy and hard to find. Were yields in your area down on rye seed or not this year? What I can tell you is that is the drought has affected, you know, just a massive area. And uh, normally, you know, things get wetter as you move further north in the prairies or further east. And it's almost the opposite's happened in some cases. With rye, um, the few fields that I know of in my area, the yields were okay. But we were an area that did get a rain at, in sure. a critical time. So there was a there was a couple of things. First of all, you know, the drought. But then last fall, it was extremely dry and not a lot of rye was planted. I would say that it's likely that quality seed will be uh, hard to come by if you're looking for fall rye. Yeah. In the story we did back in 2012, we made the comment that you're farming in one of the harshest climates on the globe, near dead center on the North American continent. But snow accumulates for six months a year and melts maybe two weeks before you start seeding in the spring. That's pretty short. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's for us normal is a, is just the average of the extremes. There isn't really a normal. You know, we hit minus 50 and we hit plus 43 this year in the Celsius scales. So that's like minus 60 to plus 110. We, you know, we can have uh well, we have an extreme drought this year and 2 years ago we had probably the equivalent of all the rain we've seen this year in one 24-hour event. We do have this challenge of a fairly tight production window and uh and so you know you manage things differently when it comes to fertility or um, planting or crop choices and that sort of thing we you know most farmers have a plan b in mind at seeding time that if things get late you switch crops because you don't have a lot of time to to make those uh adjustments when uh, when seeding is actually rolling you know you move to you know maybe barley or oats as you get late in the season it's not dissimilar to a lot of the northern plains but we are kind of in the very center where we seem to have the most extreme i'm in this weird situation where we've had seven hailstorms in the last 11 years and that's not normal like a yield map for my farm is totally useless because Nothing has been relative to what I've planned in the spring for seven of the last 11 years, and we had hail again this year. Um, and that's, that's always a wild card now, it seems. That's it for this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. Thanks to John Schmeiser, Bob and Anita Wildermuth, Scott Day, and all of our great podcast guests who were featured last year. And thanks also to our sponsor, Source from Sound Agriculture, for helping to make this podcast possible. A transcript of the episode and our archive of previous podcast episodes are both available at notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. And for our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm McCain Vogel. Thanks for listening. Keep on no-tilling and have a great day.